Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. We are the podcast for the Big Self School, and we offer classes, coaching, books, and media to help you rediscover your purpose and activate it in bigger ways. Thanks for making a little time right now to join us. We know you've got a lot to do. Even if you've got a lot of time on your hands, it's hard to be still and just listen. We're taught to just go, go, go all the time. Or maybe you're like me and you do your best listening while doing other things like making dinner, drinking wine on the back porch, or driving my kids to schools. Sometimes I just drive just to get out of the house and get a little mental space. Whatever it is you're doing to cope with the constant new normal of these uncertain times as we barrel into the holiday season, we hope it is healthy, but even if it's not, we're glad you're finding a way to self-care. And self-care is one of many topics that our guest today is a master at. Nick Wignall is originally from Northern California, but he's also lived in Dallas, Rome, Chicago, and now... uh, Albuquerque. Sounds so nice. (laughs) Where he lives with his wife and three daughters. He's a licensed psychologist at the Cognitive Behavioral Institute of Albuquerque, where he does psychotherapy with adults. Board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He specializes in empirically supported treatments for anxiety and insomnia. We all might know a little bit about that right now, including interoceptive exposure therapy for panic attacks. Easy for you to say. (laughs) Exposure and response prevention for phobias and OCD, and cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. He's board certified by the American Board of Professional Psychology. He's a diplomat of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. He's got a lot going on here, as well as a member of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies and the New Mexico Psychological Association. And he somehow made time for us. Nick Wignall, welcome to the show. We're so glad you're here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to have you on. And uh, so, well, how's the weather there in Albuquerque? I'm so jealous. You know, I love this that is area. Chad's like favorite part of the country yeah. is really Santa Fe, I think is where he yeah. wants to go. <laughs> is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty nice. You know, it's, it's kind of 70s during the day, oh, maybe nice. low 50s, 40s at night. Um, it's been pretty warm. So I'm, I'm actually ready for some cooler, crisper uh, fall weather. But uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely a nice, nice well, place weather-wise. Yeah. How, let me ask you, uh, how are you doing with all this crazy chaos happening in our world right now? How are you coping? You know, I'm doing okay. I, I feel like one of those kind of um, fortunate people who just through a combination of good luck with everything from temperament to working situation, I, I, I've got the, the long end of the stick on this one. I feel like I've just, um, you know, I can, I can still work. I've got my job. I can see my clients remotely. Um, I've, I've, I've got a lot of hobbies that are very um, amenable to, <laughs> to lockdown. I, I love to podcast. I like writing articles and blogging. And so these are all things that haven't been super affected. Um, obviously it's, it's still tough, you know, not being able to see family and, um, and friends in the area is, is hard, but I I just think I'm in general, I'm pretty fortunate compared to a lot of people I, I talk with. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're like me at all as someone who kind of, who teaches and talks and research about all these, you know, the psychological kind of, um, benefits that we can as therapists and as psychologists use to get through this pandemic. I find so many of them just kind of going out the window. <laughs> the things that I know I should be doing or should be <laughs> practicing um, have gotten have gotten hard. Like I know that I know this stuff. Like why am I not practice practicing this? I don't know if you feel that way or not. Yeah, you know it's it's one of the big ironies in, in human nature. I think is then when when things get stressful, we tend to toss out the windows all all the good habits and routines we need to actually buffer ourselves <laughs> from stress. Um, and it's very natural. It's very understandable. Um, but there's kind of an ironic process there where we really have to stay mindful and try and hang on to those, even just the really basic stuff. You know, yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, I totally agree that one of the most basic things is coming to acceptance as we understand it with, with the situation and just like maybe not being able to get as much done as, as you would like. And I am struggling with that. I don't want to accept it. I, I want to keep, you know, trying to, you know, build the big self school and try to take over the world. <laughs> it's hard to slow down. Tempering those expectations. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's yeah. 
Yeah. Well, um, let's uh, let's jump in. I know um, you know any one of these given questions, Nick, um, Shelley especially could probably deep dive with you. This is um, exactly um, you know her jam. Um, but you know, so let's begin with this. How is mental health so often a commonly misunderstood topic? Mm, this is my favorite question. You guys got a few hours here. I'm, I'm right? Just, I know. <laughs> yeah, we could just hang here for a while. I think there are a ton of um, answers to this question. One of my favorites, though, and one of the biggest, I think, is that, you know, mental health, since its kind of formal inception, maybe, I don't know, 100 and something years ago with, with kind of Freud when, when he kicked everything off, um, it, we've gone through a few stages of, of sort of prioritizing certain ideals as kind of like the fundamental ingredient in mental health. And, and so early on, I think it was... Um, insight was like the big thing that was sort of emphasized that if you kind of understood your dilemmas or your kind of unconscious conflicts or whatever, that understanding and insight was really the key to becoming mentally healthy. Um, and, and then there's, there was also this sort of, um, sort of medical model, which is still pretty, pretty dominant, which is that it's a little bit fatalistic. Like it just kind of comes down to, you know, your genes and your brain chemistry. And, and that is what sort of leads to mental illness or mental health. Um, and, and then there's been a more recent kind of wave um, in mental health, which is, I think, largely started maybe in the, the very end of the 20th century and, and is still strong today, which is, I call the kind of coping skill version of mental health, which is that um, the, the real secret is you got to kind of have a toolbox of yeah. these kind of coping skills. And when you feel bad, you, you open up your toolbox and you pull out the right coping skill. <laughs> and that's the way to sort of stay mentally healthy. Um, and I, I think all of these, while, while they have their place, I mean, obviously insight is important. Obviously, <laughs> you know, our genetics and our brain chemistry do influence our mental health. Obviously, coping skills have their place. Um, but I think all of these kind of miss the mark in a lot of fundamental ways. Um, if you think about it, like, I think in a lot of cases, just understanding the problem isn't necessarily enough to, um, to deal with it, to, to make kind of positive change. Um, you can, you know, you can take all the best drugs that all the best pharmaceutical companies have, and their efficacy is still not very good for most things. Um, you can have the perfect coping skill toolkit, and you can have all the best coping skills, um, but a lot of times, coping skills sort of function like Band-Aids. I mean, they'll make you feel better in the moment. They'll sort of treat the symptoms, but they may not be getting at sort of the underlying issue or cause. And so my, the, the thing I think most people miss, this is my long-winded answer to this question, is well, this is great. I really, Keep going. Yeah. I approach mental health um, from the perspective of habits. I think habits are actually, for most people, most of the time, I think habits are the most important level of analysis to look at mental health and to think about sort of making changes. Um, so it's, it's not just about what behavior can I implement in the moment to feel less anxious. It's about what am I doing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? What are my good habits and routines that are helping me not get so anxious in the first place? You know, it's, it's a little like in, in medicine, we've really come around to this idea that it, you know, it's great that we have all these tools in cardiology to be able to, you know, put stents in and, and do certain, you know, open heart surgery and all that's great. But, you know, the, the best thing for cardiac health is <laughs> not getting heart disease in the first place. Yeah. You know, it's like a healthy diet, regular exercise. And those things are hard. But I think we're fooling ourselves if we're in, in mental health, if we're saying, well, the best way to approach things is to treat the problem once it's there. When really, I think we should be looking at what are that good habits we can cultivate that um, buffer us from those struggles in the first place. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so anyway. Well, let me ask you this. So, and I, I want to get to anxiety in a minute, but I want to, while we're here talking about kind of the, the historical perspective of mental health a little bit. So this idea of shame around mental health is such a profound um, way that people, I think, come to it. They feel shame around any kind of uh, deficit in their mental health. And I'm certainly seeing that a lot right now um, with the pandemic. I think people, there's an expectation that, you know, I can't let my guard down. I can't show weakness. I can't be depressed or anxious or have panic or um, and I think a lot of people feel that way anyway. And now it's exacerbated 
Um, and I'm, I'm just seeing a lot of this resistance to admitting that I'm not okay. And so I'm wondering like how you think about this idea of shame around mental health. Where did that come from for us? If you, um, if you have a perspective on that. Oh yeah. I mean, I think this is a, yeah, it's a, it's a big topic with a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think a lot of these waves of, um, of thinking about mental health have kind of fostered this, this kind of intrinsic shame. I, I mean, everything from, in a lot of ways, like for a while, mental health was thought, thought of as sort of a moral failing, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's like a, it's a result of bad character, right? Um, and then we kind of swung to the other end of the spe spectrum, which is that you have no um, influence on your mental health because it's all sort of determined by your, your genes and your brain chemistry anyway. Um, and so there's nothing you can do about it, which leads to a weird kind of like helplessness kind of, <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's learned helplessness or sort of like instilled helplessness about mental health. Um, but I think to me, the, one of the biggest factors in this actually is I think as, as a mental health professional myself and, and speaking for my whole profession here, I actually don't think we do a great job of being Val, truly validating of mental health struggles. Um, I think the fact that we we focus so much on pathology and sort mm -hmm. of diagnoses and 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 I'm not I'm not talking about like kind of big picture and sort of how we talk to each other at conferences. I'm just talking about when you're sitting across from someone um, in in a therapy session or or even just when you're talking to someone kind of on the street or whatever. It's so easy to end up talking about you know anxiety disorders or your problem with anxiety mm -hmm. instead of saying like man, like we all get anxious sometimes. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, That's right. the fact that your, your brain getting anxious, it's designed to do, it evolved to do that. Welcome to the human race. That's right. <laughs> right. And it, it can get confused uh, about things. And, and obviously we can, um, those emotions and reactions can get so intense that they do really become problematic for our lives. But I think we, as mental health professionals, need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we, just how we talk about these sort of struggles. And, and another big part of that too is we, we tend to overemphasize, for good reason, I think, we, we tend to overemphasize the, the negative part of the curve of mental health. You know, we're all about like, okay, well, you're struggling. Like, how do we get back to baseline? The problem is if you never talk about what's above baseline, like what does it mean to be like the, the, the lack, the lack of illness is not the same thing as health, yes. right? But if you never talk about what that looks like, that ideal that we're striving for, it actually makes it harder to go from suffering to okay. You, you're going to get a lot further up that curve if you have a really concrete, specific idea of what it means to be not, not just free from struggles, but genuinely sort of healthy, robust, and strong. Mm -hmm. And so I think we could do a lot better talking about what that actually looks like and kind of holding up examples for that. Yeah. And I, good. I'd love that. I, I think, you know, well, there's, I don't even know what I want you to talk to on this, but I mean, I know that there is, so men definitely have more resistance to wanting to do this work. And I guess there's maybe cultural, some cultural reasons behind that, but maybe even back that up a little bit more, you know, positive psychology like it's, it's both like doing a great job in, uh, popularizing, uh, a lot of these talking points about mindsets and, and habits, but it also at the paradoxically, I guess, get, gets a bad rap, um, because it kind of starts to fall into the shallow self-help light kind of category. Could, could you talk a little bit about like positive psychology and how it is doing good things for the, you know, in the mental health community, but also why it's a part of the misconception? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one. I, 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 I am not myself kind of immersed in or, or I don't necessarily come out of the, the positive psych kind of world, although I'm, I'm very interested in it. I, from an outside perspective, I, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the reasons that the positive psych movement has failed to um, really have the kind of impact I think it wanted to have is because it was, it was started by and is largely sort of um, lives in the academic world. And mm. I would think it's very hard to get kind of sustained significant funding for like try, trying to, you know, figure out the, the sort of empirical basis of flourishing, right? Or positive minds. I mean, you get money for mm -hmm. treating PTSD, you know, like you get money for developing a new drug for depression. You, you, get, you get money for alleviating suffering. You don't, it's, it's a lot harder 
to get money um, through funding, which is where all this research kind of starts, for things that are sort of on the top half of that curve. Not so I think, that, I think stru- structurally, that's yeah. just a big uh, challenge in the, the positive psych kind of world. And I, I think a reason why it maybe hasn't uh, taken off to the same degree um, that we would like, and, and maybe the, why it's not, um, there hasn't been the same amount of rigor scientifically applied to it um, that there has been to, to other fields. Um, mm. So yeah, just a thought on that. I've never thought about that. I think you're right though. I think that, you know, following the funding model, when you have some kind of empirical basis uh, backed, you know, the research is backed by a lot of empirical studies of treatment efficacy that way, then of course, you, you know, the mon- the funding will follow. I have never considered that. And I, yeah, I, mean, it, I think it's a, it's a big reason why CBT took off so yeah. much is because it was from the beginning, it was, they were really savvy about building out the kind of empirical basis of it and getting lots of funding for it. And, and, and I think that's, that's one reason why it's been so um, successful, I, I guess you could say, as a movement within mental health and psychology. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. I think that even our kind of Western allopathic model of medicine, <clears throat> we still want to treat things. Um, you know, we want to see that move, the, the needle is moved in a direction. So positive psychology is going to struggle with that because it's an inherently not about treating. It is about this prevention. And as a medical, you know, the way that we think sometimes about mental health is this medical uh, model that's not going to that's not going to work as well. So I uh, I like that perspective. I'm going to have to think about that. And in terms of well, and in terms of like men and women, you know, like it's like men, you know, famously back when you know there were more maps were being used, men did not like to do anything other than use the map. They did not like to ask for directions, and <laughs> they're famous for that, right? And and you know, I think men like they we tend to when it comes to you know self help or, or or seeing a psychologist we're resistant because we feel like we could really figure it out ourselves and there's something weak uh when we have to go seek someone for help yeah i mean it's it's a it's a big it's a big challenge i think um there there's tons of reasons like you pointed out i think there's lots of cultural reasons there's lots of um just in the way i mean i i have, I have three young daughters and so it's it's very interesting paying attention to the mm-hmm. but i grew up with uh, four brothers. Um, wow. So I've, there's five boys and one girl in my family. So I have this interesting perspective on how, like how, how little boys are treated and how little girls yeah. are treated. And there is very much this subtle but really powerful emphasis where boys are basically reinforced for action, for like doing stuff. And little girls tend to get reinforced for, um, for more kind of interpersonal kind of relational things or even just for kind of innate qualities. I mean, the minute a little girl walks through the door, everybody's talking about what they're wearing or how pretty their hair looks or, you know, it's not what they're doing. And so I think we have these, you know, in a way that actually makes, um, that makes women um, more, I guess, open to therapy because it's an inherently kind of interpersonal project, but it's a bit, it's, it's much more of a challenge for men because it's, it's so, um, there isn't as much of a kind of action component. So I think there's a lot of levels to this there. I think on a societal level, we need to take a look at that and maybe, maybe work on that. But that's a big, that's a big thing. I I think more practically speaking, we could get better at um, changing the way we go about approaching mental health to make it more amenable and accessible to, to men or to people who come from kind of a traditional sort of maybe masculine mindset. Um, Do you think that's why habits is resonating so much with, you know, and Chad and I talk about this a lot. So he uses the word habits a lot and I use the word self-care and self-compassion a lot. And we've talked about kind of this gender differences. So I wonder if this, this uh, direction of mental health, because I would agree with you. I think I've seen a lot over the last couple years, a lot of emphasis on habits, uh, practices, things like that you can build into your day and your week and your routine. Do you think that that's partly um, the attempt to accommodate men or try to pull them into this conversation a little more? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I see this in my writing and blogging a lot. It's something I actively kind of work on. I, I think terms like, for better or worse, like terms like self-care or self-compassion are perceived as very feminine. Right. Um, and I, 
but I think there's an opportunity there. Like I, I take it as sort of a challenge in my writing. Mm-hmm. Can I, it actually, I think it makes for good writing actually. Can, can you pose something like that and then say, okay, I know this sounds kind of like fluffy and new agey and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but actually turns out this is really practical and straightforward and helpful if you think about it like this. Um, and so I, I think there's a real opportunity to um, play with these sort of stereotypes mm-hmm. in a way that makes for actually for kind of like dramatic learning about mental health. If, if you can kind of turn these things on their head and show how, well, actually the, this thing that you think seems kind of like fluffy and you know not important, it can be really super practical to you in your regular life. Um, yeah, if you I've just seen think that about on your it. Twitter account a little bit. Um, yesterday you were just like, look, self-compassion can be a really complicated thing. It means treating yourself like a friend, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's really straightforward. Yeah. But the, the term we use sound, you know, it just, it sounds more complicated than it should be. Like mm-hmm. the idea itself is very straightforward. It's not, it's not a particularly gendered thing, treating yourself like a good friend. Like that's, that's something we should all be able to relate to and get on board with. But I think as mental health professionals, we have to be able to like step outside of our own bubble. And even though I'm comfortable talking about self-compassion, I have to be aware that that's going to really, it's going to like alienate a huge segment of my audience unless I can kind of show how well, actually, here this is how you're thinking about it, but there's a good reason to think about it a little bit differently. Mm, that's good. So I want to ask you about this. So we, you know, we live in this uh, paradox of this kind of egotistical driven narcissistic culture a lot. It's, you know, it's very Western. We, you know, a lot of... Um, uh, self-emphasis, I'll just say, but we're also like incredibly hard on ourselves, you know, speaking of self-compassion. So I, talk about that a little bit. Like where does that self-talk come from? Uh, this kind of consistent need to like berate ourselves, <laughs> even though we have these like really pretty lofty expectations uh, and self-beliefs. So what, like, what are some, if we, you know, if we lean into self-compassion, what are some practices that, that you might advise us to think about? Yeah. So I think, um, in terms of where this comes from, uh, again, there's probably a lot of factors here. Um, I think a a big one is what I call the the drill sergeant theory of motivation, which is, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us, at least in kind of Western culture, we grow up, um, implicitly learning that the way to motivate yourself to do well and to succeed and therefore to be happy, because obviously you can't be happy unless you're super successful, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Irony, sorry. Yes. Just <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we all grow up internalizing this because the idea is, if you've ever watched, there's in, in so many kind of um, action or sort of military movies, there's this scene where like the, the kind of scrawny new recruit goes to boot camp and there's this like hard ass drill sergeant who's sort of yelling at him and telling him how worthless they are and how a you know, piece of garbage they are. And then, you know, you know, cue the music and montage for like two minutes. And then all of a sudden uh, the new recruit is like strong and tough and like ready to go. And, and so we assume right. that being hard on ourselves leads to success that super high expectations um, really like you know being hypercritical of yourself when you fail that that leads to better outcomes and it's my it's my experience and I think there's some there's some pretty good research to back this up people are successful despite their self-judgment and negative self-talk not because of it like correlation does not equal causation it's actually pretty I think it's it's frankly it's amazing how successful people are able to be with the just heaps of, of sort of negative self-talk, self-judgment, self-criticism that they pile on themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, it would, the potential for how, not only how much more effective you could be, but how much happier you could be if you just let some of that stuff go. So that's what I often do in, in my work and encourage people to do in my writing is, is just very simple little what we call behavioral experiments, which are in some little tiny aspect of your life, something very unintimidating. Um, just try and do it without beating yourself up and, and see what happens, mm-hmm. right? So if you, I don't know, let's say you, you say something, you, you, you flub something in a presentation at work or something like that. Um, to treat it like an experiment. Say, okay, like my typical MO with this would be, okay, I'm really going to get down on myself and spend the rest of the day kind of like hyper analyzing what happened and, and beating myself up and creating this super high standard for I can never do this again let's, let's see what, let's just see what happens if I don't do that at all. I just don't do that. Like 
is my performance going to get drastically worse over the next couple of weeks because I don't do that? And I think it's really important because you can tell yourself to your blue in the face that like, no, it's okay that I made a mistake. I'm not, I'm not a bad person. Just go blah, blah, blah. Like you, you can talk yourself, you can, you can chatter at yourself all day long. Your, your mind, your brain isn't going to change until you prove to it that something is not the case. So you have to show behaviorally, right, that you cannot engage in tons of self-judgment and actually, you know what, the world keeps going. Like things are actually okay. They may even be better, right? But it's not going to happen until your behavior proves that. And I think that's an important distinction. You, you, you can't, I don't know, you can't just sit in front of a mirror like telling yourself you're wonderful all day long. Like, that is not fundamentally going to change very much. Um, it's <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. your brain seeing your behavior and the consequences that do or don't come from that that really is going to change things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's great stuff. But, you know, I mean, of course the paradox is that, you know, we, 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 a lot of us, we think highly of ourselves, right? We, we want to have high expectations. We expect to, to be doing well. And well, yeah, you it, well it's like, if I don't berate myself, then yeah. I'm, I'm small and mediocre. It's like there's, that somehow we, we equate those two things. Like I have to yeah, push myself to right. be bigger and better. And in order to do that, I have to be hard on myself. So I, so I get like you, in a, in a recent article I checked out of yours, Nick, that you were talking about, and I totally agree The the world is surprisingly indifferent to our expectations. And, um, and I thought this was a really I good, love that. This, this was a really good insight too, because, um, you were like, have you noticed that having these expectations of others doesn't actually get them to meet those expectations? <laughs> like, say you, you pointed out like your, you, you want your son to get a job or something. Um, as a matter of fact, I've noticed that it's not very effective, my <laughs> expectations for him. <laughs> but, um, but, so, but, okay. So what is a good approach? Um, you know, like what, it, you, I, I know that you said you started maybe with some, something small with your clients, but what is a good approach to how we could maybe handle our expectations of others and maybe then in turn uh, for ourselves? Yeah, so the, the expectations are such a fascinating topic. I, I think that it's just it's something I'm really thinking a lot more about lately. Me too, I agree, yeah. So the first thing about expectations I think we have to come to grips with is they, we just don't think about our expectations very often. They're, they're like these software programs that sort of run in the background, um, and they, they take up huge amounts of, you know, quote-unquote, computing power mm-hmm. um, from us. They take up huge amounts of energy, and they often have really profound effects on our decisions and our moods and our emotions, but they like run in the background. And I think that is really where we need to start, which is we need to shine a light on them. So what I often recommend to people, first of all, is you have to, it's really important to take stock of your expectations. Like literally ask yourself, what are my expectations? So I, I, and I recommend doing this just like pull out a piece of paper, write down the three most important relationships in your life. Maybe it's your spouse, your boss, and the parent, something like that. Um, Then just sit there for 15 minutes and think through, okay, what are my expectations of this person? You know, and it it could be something very small, like, well, actually, I I expect that when I get home from work, um, you know, my my kids are just going to like... have huge smiles on my faces. They're going to run to see me. Daddy, we're so happy to see you. And, blah, blah. and But then I walk in and actually they're just like super absorbed in some little puzzle they're doing or some game they're playing. And I get right. disappointed, right? <laughs> but that's just because I have this expectation and it's been running in the background. Um, but I haven't bought, who knows where it came from, but I haven't bothered to look at it um, or, or update it, which is the word I, I kind of like to use, mm. um, ever. It's just literally been running there in the background. So I think the first thing is you got to take an inventory of your expectations. It's sort of like if you're, if you're having financial problems, the first thing people are going to suggest is, well, you got to figure out where you're spending money. So start tracking your expenses, mm. right? And it, it gets pretty, it's a little tedious, honestly. Like you got to keep every single receipt for every little like cappuccino you buy and every little, you know, time you fill up a gap. Yes, you do. <laughs> if you really want to change your spending habits, you got to know where that money's going. Similarly, if you want to get, if you think expectations are, are playing an unhelpful role in your life, the first thing you have to do is just, you got to be able to see them. You got to be able to name them. You got to know what they are. So I, again, yeah. I, I like the simple exercise of just, and I think starting with relationships is a good idea because often our expectations are relational in nature. They're about either ourself or other people. Um, so start with, 
you know, just list a few of those people that's and good. just try and generate what are some of those expectations. Um, so that's, that's the first step. And then the second step, I think, is, again, I, I use this sort of like apps on a computer metaphor. Like if you, this, this one doesn't work as well because nowadays like apps just sort of uh, update uh, automatically. But if you remember back in the day, you had to manually update your apps. Yeah. But if you didn't, you could have these old apps that would like hang around on your computer or your phone. And if they were too old, they would really get in the way of the performance of your computer, right? Or your, or your phone. They, they would like drag the whole system down. And that's exactly yeah. what these sort of unexamined, unupdated uh, expectations do. And so I think what you find is once you do that list, once you kind of make explicit, okay, here are some of the big expectations that are running in my life. Um, once you do that, I guarantee it right off the bat, 25% of those you're going to see and you're going to go, I mean, those are just ridiculous. Like those are not doing anything good in my life. Like I just need to, I can toss those. And then the other big chunk, whatever percentage it is, a lot of them you're going to find, okay, these are really outdated or <laughs> these are lacking in a lot of nuance. So how can I update these to be more realistic or more helpful given my kind of goals or values for these relationships? So my, I love that. I think we just got a title for this uh, for this yeah. podcast. Right there. So my, I wish I was that proactive, Nick. <laughs> I'm a little more reactive. So yeah. I will disclose here on the podcast, the Big Self Podcast. So Chad and I got into a pretty big fight last week on our walk, okay. and um, I said something, and I had this old script about how he was supposed to respond based on my expectations. And he did not respond that way. And it proceeded to go south really quickly to the point where we walked halfway through around the block and I just turned around and walked back to my house. So it, it did not end well. So, I, you know, at, at that point... I'm glad point, Nick's here for you right now. I know, right? Um, but, but I think, I'm laughing because I've done this so many times Yeah, I mean, myself. I wish I were better than I am, but it's just true. I just had these expectations. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until... I reacted with emotion. Usually, I mean, no, no kidding. 80% of the time, my emotional reaction is because someone has not met my expectation. So I have really started to pay attention to that. Like, I'm not so good about the proactive tracking, but man, when I have this emotional reaction hmm. to one of our kids or to Chad or to my parents or to a client, like it's because I am operating from this old script and now it's indicating like, okay, you need to stop and you need to do an update. Um, so I'm really cluing into that. So I think that's a really powerful thing you're saying. Yeah, and you bring up a good distinction too between you can sort of have the, 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 the bigger kind of expectation running in the background, but it often manifests itself in terms of like specific snippets or scripts of self-talk yeah. in specific situations. And I think those that's another way to sort of examine your expectations is by those are clues. Those are really oftentimes really obvious clues once you pay attention to them. Those little bits of self-talk in an emotionally charged situation, those are gold. If you can take the time to pause and like figure out what those are, those will lead you right back to the expectations that are causing the friction um, in the first place, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, um, so maybe along these lines then, Nick, could you talk a little bit about anxiety and yes. why you so strongly advise meditation as one of the habits that your clients, you, you, you advise them to practice this? Man, I am so conflicted about the idea of meditation. <laughs> one of the ways I talk about this is I, I think med meditation, especially mindfulness meditation, is mm -hmm. somehow it's simultaneously the most under and overrated thing in all of popular culture right now. Like I, <laughs> and I say that because oh, yeah, like, I want to hear more. This is good. You, you can't go to a grocery store without seeing some, you know, magazine yep. about like, oh, the benefits know. of mindfulness and, you know, stress reduction and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, it's just all over the place. I mean, every podcast, I mean, my own podcast, I'm interviewing people about mindfulness. you know, it's just, it's everywhere. And so in a way, I think that's, it's unhelpful because it sort of, it cheapens the brand in a way. Like by the time, like real simple is talking about like the benefits of mindfulness, <laughs> like, you know, maybe you've gone, kind of gone too far afield. Um, but I, I will say at the same time, there is not, in my own personal experience, um, 
in my personal practice, there's not a single thing I do on a regular basis that is better for my mental health than a regular mindfulness meditation practice. And it's not even close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it is just in terms of like regular practices or exercises that contribute to pod, to well-being and mental health. What does yours look is, like? Wow. I'm curious, Nick. Yeah. So it's it's really um, basic and unsexy. I mean, it's just, it's just the really just basic the best, right? version of meditation, which is where I, I sit down and I, 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 don't, I don't sit in any like special like pose or posture. I'm not on a yoga mat. I'm, I'm usually just at my desk chair or may, maybe on my, um, you know, one of my chairs in my office. No, um, no candle. Down, no candle, no incense, no, uh, no music, no, no app, no, no nothing really. Um, just me. It's well, and this is the whole thing. It's just me and my mind. And that is the whole kind of point of meditation, I think. So I sit down and I just, I, the, the goal, if you want to call it that is I just try and keep my attention on my breath, like physically, just what it feels like to breathe for air to kind of come in through your nostrils and fill up your lungs and come back out again. And I'm not doing deep breathing. It's nothing special or fancy. I'm just trying to keep my awareness on what it feels like to breathe. Now, inevitably, my mind um, distracts me, right? I start thinking about, you know, the article I want to write after my meditation practice. I think about like the stuff I got to pick up at the grocery store, that stupid thing I said yesterday, the fight my wife and I got in, you know, last week, whatever. My mind just like throws all this stuff at me. And each time I try, eventually I catch myself and realize, oh, hey, I'm distracted. <laughs> um, that's okay. I, am, I can think about that later. I'm going to return my attention back to my breath, which is what I'm trying to focus on. Um, and I, I try to do that in as gentle and non-judgmental a way as possible. It's not you idiot. You got distracted again, blah, blah, you know, no, 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 no. It's, that's all right. Mm-hmm. My mind has a lot of things it wants to tell me and that's totally fine. But right now for the next 20 minutes or whatever, like I'm, my job is to sort of focus on my breath. So the key, like you, you mentioned meditation in the context of anxiety. And I think that's a great way to kind of explain one of the benefits of, of mindfulness. So the, the reason this is so important is because if, if you think about anxiety, the, the, I like to say the engine of anxiety is worry. Like when we worry, it produces anxiety. The, the mental kind of habit and pattern of worrying about threats and dangers and what could go wrong is what stimulates the emotion and the feeling of anxiety. Uh, right. So what you ha- the, the reason mindfulness is so beneficial is because it it develops these two mental muscles that are super important, which is awareness, your ability to recognize, okay, I had a a certain goal, but my mind is actually on something else right now, right? I'm supposed to be focusing on my breath, but my mind is on my to-do list for the rest of the morning. Or I'm supposed to be doing my work, but I'm worrying about that conversation I had with my manager, you know, a week ago. So that's the first thing. Improve it. Mindfulness improves that ability to catch yourself when your mind strays from what you want it to be focused on. And then the second part is, you can call it focus or redirection, which is the ability to take your attention and move it from one thing to another thing and hold it on that other thing despite the first thing screaming its head off saying, no, 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 I'm the most important thing. <laughs> right. Focus, focus back on me. This worry is terrible. And if you don't focus on me, you know, the world's going to come to an end. Um, which if you've ever found yourself worrying, which of course, who hasn't, right? We all do. It's amazingly hard to pull your mind off of worry, right? And onto yeah. what it is you're doing. It's like driving down the freeway and seeing a huge accident. Like everybody knows looking at the accident is, but it's dangerous. You're likely to cause another accident, right? But it's not helpful. You're not doing anything. You're not helping anybody by gawking at this accident that happened. And you're probably causing traffic, right? Because you're slowing down. Um, everybody knows I should keep my mind, you know, on the road ahead of me, but it's so hard not to look, right? Just like it's so hard when you're in this like spiral of worries, it's so hard to pull yourself away. Well, one, there's a lot of reasons why that's hard. One of the reasons why it's hard is, the muscle responsible for doing that is just weak in most of us. We just mm-hmm. don't train it. Um, and mindfulness is the most concentrated, effective way I have ever found to train that muscle. And so when you do mindfulness regularly, you strengthen that, those two twin muscles that allow you to, A, recognize when your mind has gone to someplace unhelpful, and B, bring it back to whatever it is you want to be focused on and, and sort of thinking about or working on. 
So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It makes a ton of sense. And it kind of, you know, answers the question and, and a, you know, you've implied why it's, it's hard for people to practice this thing. Yes, it's trendy. So everybody's kind of, you know, I mean, it's trendy, but it's actually, it's very effective, but then it is hard to do. Um, so, and this, maybe you can help answer for people listening right now. Um, I remember, you, so recently on your podcast, um, with, uh, you had a meditation expert on there, uh, Lodro Rinsler. I don't know if I mm-hmm. pronounced that right. Yep. Uh, and what you guys discussed the importance of finding your why when it comes to meditation. Uh, he had a lot, a lot of good stuff to say on that is because new habits. So I was thinking, yeah, if I'm going to start a new habit, um, it's, you, you gotta, you gotta either feel pretty stuck or, or something really bad is going on for you to be like, okay, I've got to start meditating. Right. So you got to find your why, um, you know, and we've, you got it. We, we, we should meditate if we want to make some changes. How do you work with your clients? How do you try to get them motivated to take that first step? Um, and, and maybe I guess the larger question could even be just how do you help your clients find their, their why? Yeah. So I, I think there's, there's two pieces to this. Um, the, the first kind of broader perspective is I think a big reason why people have a hard time starting a, a mindfulness practice is because they, they're confused about what it actually is. And this is, frankly, this is mostly our fault as sort of mental health professionals or proponents of, of mindfulness or the editors who are kind of pitching it as main stories in all these magazines is we, tr- culturally, we treat mindfulness like a coping strategy, like a, re- like a relaxation technique. Oh, you're feeling stressed? Well, go do five minutes of mindfulness. Like open up your mindfulness app and like, you know, do some deep breathing or whatever. Now that's fine. Like if, if you want to use it like that, you can, but that is not the way in which I think about mindfulness meditation as a, as a, a helpful practice for long lasting positive mental health. And what I mean by that is to me, mindfulness meditation is not a coping skill. I do not do mindfulness when I'm stressed. I do mindfulness every day, first thing in the morning so that I don't get as stressed out in the first place. So it's, it's an exercise, not a coping strategy. It's like a preventive. So you, exactly. If, if you were a sprinter in the Olympics, you wouldn't do a bunch of wind sprints right before your race, right? That, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's an exercise, right? It's not going to make you faster. In the short term, it's going to make you slower, right? You, d- you do wind sprints in practice the week before so that your muscles grow so that at the time of the race, then you're really strong. So I think one of the reasons people have such a hard time is they, they've been sort of deluded into what a mindfulness practice is and should be. And it's, it's okay as a relaxation technique or a coping skill, but its real benefit and power is as a regular exercise and routine that prevents you from getting into all those stressed out, anxious um, places in the first place, or at least makes it less likely or makes you more able to handle them when you do find them there. So I think that's, that's the first really big thing. And then when it comes to finding your why, I mean, this is important. Like your, your, your motivation has to be, you need, it, it helps anyway, if you have a really strong motivation for doing something, especially something as frustrating and difficult as mindfulness can be at times. And I think the biggest mistake people make here is they're way too vague about their, their why. Mm. So they say, oh, well, why do you want to do mindfulness? Well, I want to be more relaxed, right? I don't want to be as stressed out. Great. None of us do, right? Everyone wants to be more relaxed and less stressed out. <laughs> right. The problem is yeah. that is way too vague. And vague, overly conceptual things don't have much motivational pull. So anything has a certain amount of like motivational gravity, right? The degree to which it pulls you towards it. When things are vague, they tend to not have much gravity, right? But when you get really specific about something, ironically, when you get kind of smaller scale, the motivational pull and gravity gets much stronger. So an example I like to use for this is I had a client who was, um, wanted, to, wanted to start um, working out more because he was out of shape and, and really overweight. And it was, for a lot of reasons, he, he needed to start working out. And his, when we first started working, his primary motivation was health. Like, I want to be healthier. Again, like, great, super good, super good goal, right? Mm-hmm. Super, super good thing to, to be focused on. But health has no motivational teeth. Like, it, it just, it's not going to pull you. Eventually, what we ended up drilling down to that really helped him was he, a reason why he wanted to be healthy was he had these new um, grandsons and he, he really wanted to be able to, like, 
play and engage with his grandsons. As it was, he was so, he was so overweight that he would, he would get tired like 30 seconds into playing with his grandkids and he'd have to go sit down and, and rest. And so he couldn't actually do anything fun that he wanted to do with his grandkids. So when he really fleshed out that like he wanted to be able to like roll around the grass and play flag football and, you know, play baseball and stuff with his grandkids and take them to baseball games and do all this kind of stuff. That's when this goal got a lot of motivational pull. And that's when he was able to start exercising more regularly because this, this goal actually had teeth now. It had real kind of gravity to it. So I think if you're, if you're thinking about starting a meditation practice, you have to go beyond the kind of initial superficial uh, vague goals. Like I want to be less stressed or, you know, well, if you want to be like, why do you want to be less stressed? What would that get you in your life? So really try and drill down to something specific, something like something you can taste, something you can smell, something you can feel, right? Mm -hmm. When you do that, your, your motivation is going to be much stronger and you're going to find it easier, maybe not easy, but easier, easier. to stick with this habit of, of mindfulness meditation. So I really appreciate that you're saying that. It makes me think of when I was um, CEO of a tech company that I started. So, you know, <clears throat> being a psychologist and then moving into running a hardware technology company. Mm, what to go wrong? Yeah, was... Um, <laughs> I don't even know how to like put words to the des describers of how much anxiety and stress and mm -hmm. emotion that came with that. And I remember being, I was in therapy and have been most of my adult life, but my therapist was really, she's fantastic. She's a phenomenal therapist and she was really encouraging me to practice some form of mindfulness meditation. And I, rem I remember I was like paralyzed. I was like, I, I, intellectually, I know you're right and I want to do it, but there's literally no way in hell I can sit still right now <laughs> and not have like fireworks going off in my body. And so I guess my question, and especially going back to some of your CBT work, like if someone's in it, you know, thinking about the people that are kind of they're in this heightened state of anxiety right now. And they, the idea of mindfulness meditation is appealing, but maybe not possible. So what could you offer to folks who, who are in the middle of it? They can't even imagine sitting down right now, much less meditating. Um, what, what are some potential kind of CBT tools or strategies that you could offer? Yeah, good question. I, I don't know how um, CBT these are necessarily, but they're very counterintuitive. I've got a couple thoughts on this. Okay. It's a really important question. A lot of people struggle with this. Um, the first thing that's very counterintuitive is you, you should do it when you're most relaxed. Don't do it when you're stressed. Like, mm -hmm. That's the worst. It's like trying to work out when you're already sore from like, you know, moving or something. Like that's the worst time. To, yes. You're going to feel awful it's while impossible. you're working out. No, do, do your workouts, especially when you're trying to establish a habit do it when you feel best. Do it when you have the most energy. So in the case of mindfulness, if you do it and you find that your brain is just buzzing and there's just so much anxiety and, and sort of stray thoughts, well, try and find a time mm -hmm. when that, your overall level of stress and anxiety is lower and do it then, at least in the, in the beginning when you're establishing the habit. So I think that's a really important kind of yeah. Yeah, framework to kind of, or, or kind of, um, yeah, place to look at it big picture. The, the other thing is how you, again, like, I think especially for people who are a little um, high on the kind of like need for achievement scale, like high achievers who are like goal-oriented people. No, yeah, <laughs> me either. I have no right? idea. <laughs> um, the, the death trap for mindfulness is thinking of it as a, like a game or, or like a competition. P this, this kills people's mindfulness habits more often than anything else, which is they think to themselves, okay, I tried to meditate for five minutes, but I was constantly distracted. I suck. Therefore, this isn't going to work for me. I didn't win at meditation. <laughs> I didn't win, right? Like meditation 40, Nick zero, right? Because I got distracted all the time. <laughs> that, but that it, it's the completely, uh, it's a backwards way of looking at it because the fact that you're distracted, that is the whole point. It wouldn't be beneficial if you weren't distracted. That's like, it's, it's like saying, you know, my, my workout today wasn't any good because I felt tired while I was lifting weights. Well, of course you're feeling tired. That's the whole point. Like <laughs> your muscles don't build unless they're stressed, right? That's what leads to bigger muscles. And it's the same thing with mindfulness meditation. Distraction is, that's, that's, the, that's the active ingredient in, in mindfulness mm -hmm. is the fact that you get distracted 
and then try and return your attention. So it's, it's actually not a great, from the perspective of kind of building your attentional muscles, it's not great if your mindfulness practice is super relaxing and, and zen-like and calm. It means you didn't grow very much. Mm. It's the sessions yeah, where your yeah. mind is really going bananas that you're getting the most benefit out of it. So I, th I think the, 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 the thing I like to remind people of is like just the fact that you, it's like going to the gym. Like getting to the gym and doing something is by far the most important thing. Like wh whether you could only run for 30 minutes instead of your usual 35 minutes, in the grand scheme of things, that is small potatoes. Showing <laughs> like, up. Just going to the showing yeah, up yeah. and doing it is the, the far more important thing. It's not a competition. You don't get points for how many times you do or don't get distracted or whatever. Like just doing it is what's important. So I think, I think it's, it's just a really hard thing for us kind of like, again, sort of high achieving Western types to kind of get out of that mindset of this is just another task or like game I have to win at. Because mm -hmm. that's what we've been doing our whole life is like signing up for games and then trying to win. Um, yeah. me meditation is about, the whole point of meditation is in a, in a kind of big sense is realizing like you, do, like you don't have to play that kind of game anymore. <laughs> mm, um, and so it's, it's I, I think those kind of mindset issues approaching meditation are really, really, so I, I don't even recommend that people do mindfulness meditation until I've really worked through what it is and why it might be potential to potentially beneficial and, and how to approach. I think that, I think as proponents of mindfulness, we shoot ourselves in the foot or we shoot our clients in the foot by just kind of throwing them into it and saying, here, this thing's great. Go do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think those two things, um, you know, not kind of like keeping score um, with yourself or treating it like this sort of like goal or, or game or project is super important. Um, th that's just like, yeah, it's such a big one, I think. Th that is huge. Yeah. I think we should um, probably end on that note, le leaving our audience wanting a little bit more. I uh, <laughs> know um, that is great stuff. Um, thanks for sharing um, just some of your wisdom and insights, Nick. Where can uh, I know that they could just Google your name and you'd be everywhere? Um, and I tell I want the audience to uh, follow you on Twitter. Um, but where else would you like to direct uh, people? Um, sure. Yeah. If if, if you um, want to learn more about me, my work, uh, my website, and my newsletter in particular, which it's, it's easy to sign up for, is nickwoodmill.com, N-I-C-K-W-I-G-N-A-L-L. -L. Um, and I send out a weekly newsletter where I send my, you know, I, I write a couple articles a week and, um, and link to other interesting stuff I found on topics like personal growth, mental health, um, emotional well-being, that kind of stuff. Um, and so that's really the kind of the hub for all my stuff. So yeah, head on over there if you're interested. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for this wonderful conversation and for your presence and your wisdom. Um, I think this is really going to, I know this is really going to be a gift to our audience. So thank you very much. Thank you guys for having me. And, and thank you for all, all your really good work too with the Big Self School. And um, it's, it's just great. I think we're all, um, you know, we've all got the same goal in the big picture. So yeah, yeah let's keep going. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. At the Big Self School, we want you to connect with the world in a way that's meaningful. And to do that, you need a community that supports you as you rediscover your purpose and resources to help you along the way. So we're here to help with that. We offer books, workshops, and group coaching to help you rediscover your big self. We hope you'll check out our gratitude challenge this month, the month of November, at bigselfschool.com slash gratitude. We will see you in our next episode.